Captain's log, star date 4731.3. The M5 Multitronic unit has taken over total control of the Enterprise. I can't run a starship with 20 crew. The M5 can. That thing murdered one of my crewmen, and now you tell me you can't turn it off? Sir, sensors are picking up four Federation starships. Base is firing. Hit on the Lexington. We're firing again, sir. Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith, and join me on the bridge. This is Tyler Orton, gambling on Cam's humanity. See, I was hoping you would just go silent, because there is no one else on the bridge. We're letting technology steer the ship this week, right? Uh, duotronic technology, right? Oh, no, actually, no, that was what uh, one Richard Daystrom got the Nobel Prize in. Um, but then after that Nobel Prize, it was multitronic technology for the ultimate computer known as M5. Cam, we're tackling the ultimate computer from the original series and whether or not this is the ultimate naughty artificial intelligence episode in all of Star Trek. Yes, because there's a lot to choose from. Kirk has talked a lot of computers to death, and that's a trope that's become something that's been very prominent in Discovery, Picard, uh, even Lower Decks had a bit of that going on past season. So I think this is an interesting episode to go back to, and one that has become a real favorite of mine. But I'm curious, you know, for you, revisiting the episode, you know, what were your memories of it the first time through? Uh, Mostly just uh, Richard Daystrom. You know, like, he was very, like, honestly, it's his, Mm. like, outfit that uh, jumped out to me more than anything else, but he just seems like kind of a, uh, like a genuinely, like, like not a relatable character so much as you relate to what he's going through. And I think the performance there, I'm blanking on the um, the guest performer's name there, but uh, a very, very good performance there. It's uh, William Marshall, who actually played Blackula, uh, famously the iconic horror character. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, there you go. Uh, and look, I, it's just, it was his performance that jumped out to me more than anything else from my memories going back to this it's really kirk's journey you know mm-hmm. <laughs> that really uh pops to me and i i, I know th- this is a uh legit like you know classic tos episode that i doesn't like it, it is well liked among the fans but it's not always going to be talked about as much as you know say um you know the doomsday machine or something like, like uh, of that ilk no it's an episode that i'm surprised doesn't get more attention um because Obviously, Kirk is a beloved icon, and when you start naming off the great Kirk stories, people say, well, Balance of Terror, City on the Edge of Forever. You don't often hear the uh, ultimate computer, and I think it's one of the most interesting episodes in examining exactly what it means to Kirk to be the captain of a starship. Like, how often do you get to hear a character very self-aware about his placement within, you know, Starfleet, talk about why it's important to him, and really grapple with that and try to explain it over the course of the episode? Cam is called Picard Season 1. Uh, <laughs> duh. What was the uh, outcome of that again? What, what did he decide by the end? <laughs> uh, I am a robot. Where are John <laughs> Luke's memories? They are now in my brain, and we will never talk about this again. We are the greatest Star Trek show that ever existed. I, I'm glad you bring up Picard, though. Because can, can, can I just uh, jump in right away? Uh, yeah. <laughs> because we forgot to tell listeners something. Uh, you know, we're doing this episode because it's right before Christmas. So this is why it's uh, either a naughty or nice AI kind of episode. And the other thing we'll be doing is we'll be talking about Avatar 2, The Way of Water. We caught it opening night uh, Thursday. And uh, we'll dive into that um, in just a little bit at the end of this one. But I think we'll have a fun discussion there. But Cam, you're glad that I brought up Picard. Uh, why is that? Because I could not stop thinking about New Trek last night when I was watching this episode. Ultimate Computer is an episode you could actually stage as like a play, and it would totally work. But it's so, you know, the word we keep throwing around with newer Trek often is pretentious. But like, you look at how those shows would tackle this sort of story, and it would be like one big speech, and that's kind of the end of it. And it would just be, I think, very like, try hardish 
Whereas, like, here, it feels so organic, the way that Kirk goes through this journey. I think the best scene in the entire episode is when he's in the hallway, you know, talking to Bones, and he's just, like, trying to explain why this is bothering him. And he's aware that, like, progress is good. We need to support progress. We understand how, like, we feel bad for the other person when their job is being replaced by, you know, automation or machines. But we don't like it to happen to us. But... The idea of someone who cares about Starfleet, wants it to be better, but is like terrified about what that could mean to his career. You don't have those sorts of extended conversations with a self-aware character in newer Trek. What would be the equivalent, though? You know, like um, somebody, I don't know, uh, walks up to Tilly and is like, hey, you know, <laughs> instead of you being a Starfleet Academy instructor, we're just going to get like a hologram to do that. <laughs> um. There would probably be like an F word or something like that, yeah, a quirky line. Sure. And you would get like, uh, they would have like a, a real like, um you know, pull out the hankies, emotional moment about it or a big kind of the equivalent of we are Starfleet kind of speech. But you would not have that kind of the way they handle in this episode where it's Kirk really talking through his emotional process so that we are understanding exactly what he's going through. And it's not played as like, you know, screaming to the rafters, it's kind of pulling you in. It's very, like, intimate storytelling where it's actually causing the audience to, like, connect emotionally and intellectually with the character. Well, think about, like, Picard Season 2 where Seven and Raffi are having uh, one of their, I think, 14 different fights as uh, partners that they (laughs) had during uh, uh, one or two episodes. But uh, all of a sudden we hear Seven say, you're manipulative, Raffi. And yeah. we didn't really dive into that very much with the character leading up to that. I think the next episode, or maybe the same episode, we had like that uh, flashback with her interacting with Elnor, and it's her convincing him to pursue Starfleet when it's not necessarily where his heart was. But it's just like it, it's something that all came up within a single episode, and it just seems so mm-hmm. very arbitrary versus, as you said, Cam, uh, organic in that hallway scene, which I, for me, that really stuck out to me as well. Just him, Kirk, even just you know tapping the back of his head and saying, "I'm getting a red alert right here," <laughs> you know, <laughs> just kind of like those kinds of moments, as you know, even stuff like they're uh, like Kirk is asking, you know, you know, what are the things that men might do to remain men and by that he's talking about humanity you know like if we can't have jobs that are fulfilling to us you know that give us purpose are we going to be left to i don't know paint landscapes all day it's almost kind of this like this thing ingrained within our own kind of like caveman psyches that need it like we, we need to be productive in a way and it's kind of this kind of existential journey that he's going on as he's thinking about that and i i think it's <laughs> if it's a discussion that was going on you know 55 years ago think about how it's just ramped up so much right now where uh we back then like in you know north america so many more manufacturing jobs that have since been shipped overseas we also mm-hmm. see that automation is trying to solve a lot of the labor gaps going on right now. Um, I don't know what what is that uh, artificial intelligence like chat um, thing uh, that's just been making the waves the last week, where it's like, yeah, we'll just get like some chatbot to artificially create all the blogs uh, that exist moving forward. You know that sort of stuff, and it 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 it, it creates pressure on people like this anxiety within people about like just certainty within their lives and for us it's very much you know economic question but for kirk it's very much an existential question and i i think you know what was it it's like uh like am i afraid of like losing the prestige and power that comes with being a starship captain that speaks a lot to his self-awareness as just kind of like a a captain of a starship during that era one of my favorite lines is when he says, I think that thing is wrong, and I don't know why. It's it's gut instinct. Yeah, it's gut instinct, but it's not a line you would hear in a newer Star Trek show. They would say, that thing is wrong, period. And, yeah, <laughs> like There would be no question of like, I don't know why. Like It's bothering me, and I need to work through this process. And I like how Spock has a lot of admiration for this program and sees a lot of good in what the M5 could accomplish, and that it could save lives. It could be good for Starfleet. And I 
love that this episode has the two of them having contrasting points of view about the M5, but it's never turned into, like, Kirk's mad at Spock because Spock supports the computer. It's like a very, like, logical, reasonable discussion between the two. And the way that Bones works into it, too. Like, Bones is not screaming at Spock the whole episode. He definitely has some snide comments. But it is a very, like, mature episode. And this is the sort of storytelling that, like, sometimes I forget about. Because I I haven't gone back and watched, you know, the original series or TNG in a while. I have been (laughs) knee-deep in new Star Trek content for quite a while. Tyler, I think the other day you and I were realizing how long we had been covering new Star Trek on the air, on the podcast. And it's been like a long time. And so most of my Star Trek uh, input these days is what's coming out now through the Kurtzman Factory. And when I go back and watch an episode, it's like, this is what I love about Star Trek. It's that characters talking things through, inviting us into these debates, um, you know, filling them out with cool concepts like the M5 or various other things on other shows which feels like it's kind of absent in the newer era. And I would like to get back to more of this, where it's very character-driven explorations of concepts, concepts that are cool, that I think people enjoy, but that allow you to kind of go, you know, do the work, basically. Um, A lot of uh, Star Trek shows now, it's like, here's the problem, here's the solution. This episode is all about doing the work to get to what the episode ultimately means. Well, I, I think some of the examples that they were trying to do in New Trek recently that touch on some of the questions brought up in the Ultimate Computer, you of course have uh, Control, the main antagonist mm-hmm. from season two of Discovery, in which it's essentially artificial intelligence is you know uh, guiding you know uh, Starfleet decision making, and um, it soon becomes like corrupted and unsafe, and it's like yeah, I could have seen that coming. But it, it it just really felt that they kind of scratched the surface of it. It was just kind of like, yeah. you know, like, okay, so Starfleet Command is getting um, advice from this AI-powered decision-making, like, um, program. And they're following that advice until it goes wrong. And then they decide, you know, by the end of the season, like, yeah, we're not going to be doing that. You know, and so... <laughs> It also kind of make, makes me question uh, why they were going to try doing that once again with the Ultimate Computer and have, uh, you know, 10 years later, have uh, starships, <laughs> you know, uh, being controlled by artificial intelligence when it turned out that, uh, you know, control, the antagonist, was a total failure. But I, I just, like, what, what, what did we get out of that existentially from any of the characters? It, it just For me, it just manifested in the form of this antagonist that was kind of lame by the time that um, Control took over the body of Leland. But were there any existential questions that it brought up about the role of AI? No, and I think there would have been a lot of possibilities. The idea of, you know, Section 31 being this sort of, this, you know, black ops group that Starfleet and the Federation don't really like to acknowledge. The idea of kind of handing over the thinking of that to a machine which really does remove the human connection. They can distance themselves that much further from what exactly it is. And having that go awry, I think, is actually a really compelling concept. But, you know, this was... hmm, Discovery wasn't really interested in spending the time to kind of examine these things. It was more of that action-based storytelling. I, I do think, like, as much as I prefer seasons one and two of Discovery to what came later, the first two seasons very much felt self-conscious about quote-unquote boring people like they really want it to be this action-based show uh the idea of them doing an episode like the ultimate computer where the characters sit around and talk about the ramifications of uh the evil ai um was very unlikely on discovery you know i'm glad you brought that up because i I didn't quite think about that too much and that like yeah you're right like um discovery those first two seasons it was always like go 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 and i think you and i kind of complained about the pacing but then we got seasons three and four we found ourselves (laughs) like bored like just genuinely bored quite a lot and like the the like the run times didn't help and like the storylines didn't help you know like i just there's nothing more excruciating to me than like uh the episode stormy weather and it was just so utterly pretentious too but it's just kind of like there's just something about not only were these stories being like dragged out for so long, but like the episodes further in the plot points, like 
they weren't exciting either. No, and I think when you're tackling a concept like, you know, AI gonna, you know, awry like we have here, or we had in Discovery Season 2, um, or, you know, obviously there was a lot of stuff with Zora going on on uh, Discovery Season 4. To me, like, what makes it work is if it's grounded in a character that we care about. And they're, look, I'm not giving TOS, like, just all the credit here, because TOS had some episodes of also Technology Gun Rye that maybe aren't great. Return of the Archons, for example, or um, The Apple. You know, those ones aren't all-timers, um, because kind of like the Discovery stuff, they're not... They don't speak to our characters. What makes the Ultimate Computer to me so special is that it is speaking about Kirk. It's what does this technology mean to our main character? They create a really cool scenario that he has to grapple with and is suspenseful. But ultimately, it's about examining Kirk. And most of those stories on Discovery or even in those TOS ones I named, that's not the case. They're more about the concept versus the character. Um... Okay, so it's an examination of Kirk, of course. You know, I look, I, uh, Bones, he's all id. You know exactly what he's thinking throughout this. Um, Spock, as he said, w- was very admiring of M5, uh, always referring to it, how logical it was. Uh, for me, the, the journey with Kirk, as he was trying to grapple with where he's going to go from here, and then him being thrust into the decision-making mode, trying to figure out how to defeat this artificial intelligence that would you know, be able to take command. I, I like I didn't get the sense that M five was infinitely smarter than our crew. No. Simply that it just had the power to take over the ship, you know, and so even it being like um the quintessential Kirk debate that he often has with like uh computers and him just saying like, Well, um you <laughs> cannot kill people, right? That's correct. Well you kill people. That's correct. What is a punishment for death? Uh, de- or uh, for killing people, death. You know, and they're like, what? Well, again, uh, United Federation planets. They still have the death penalty in this era, which is, you know, it's brought up a time and again, which is always curious. You know, I'm never going to Talos Five, believe me. You know, but it's like it wasn't like it didn't take that much to outsmart the computer. But the thing, so I, I was more drawn into was Daystrom. You know, and just like what what is going on in his like? How did he think? this is going to end and how come he couldn't really be the one to you know obviously he's not the main character but just from like a logical perspective why wasn't he the one being able to more kind of shepherd the solution along they i think they like set up that like because he's put his his own you know brain engrams uh into the computer um and so i think they're like setting up that like daystrom and it's said, you know, by Bones, I think, that it's like a child to him. So he's incredibly protective of it and doesn't even just see it as a machine that's going awry. But also, he seems to be um, falling apart a little bit. He doesn't seem to be on the best uh, the best of straights. And I, I think, like, part of the problem is, is that if you have someone who's unstable, who's then, uh, you know, putting their uh, mental ingrams into a computer, the computer is unstable as well. So... I wonder if he even has the ability to recognize that and fix it. Well, was he unstable or was he just like one of those kind of genius types that couldn't really relate to other folks? You know, like I I think what they were saying there is like, yeah, age 24, he's getting the Nobel Prize, uh, some other prize. Um, He's maybe reached his heights. And and so he's maybe just kind of grasping for more. And I I just wonder, like, does he seem like kind of a fellow that you want to go grab a beer with? Like, is he kind of the personal uh, personable type you would go back and forth with? Like, I just wonder if that's more his struggle rather than him being kind of like mentally unstable. Well, it seems like by the end, he is like having a nervous breakdown. And I, I wonder if it's like someone who, yes, he is like a genius, but he is like watching his genius kind of break down around him. So like maybe there's some aspect of his personality that's flawed, that's affecting the computer program, but watching his, you know, his child basically, you know, kill Starfleet members, um, probably he's seeing his own career you know, <laughs> go up and smoke before his eyes, like that probably causes the nervous breakdown. But there had to be something, I think, some fragile aspect of himself that caused the um, M5 to behave the way it did, right? Uh, well, because I, I know what you're saying, like like they're extracting those, like uh, like his brain uh, ingrams are like extracted from 
him and place yeah. on to M5. You know, but like, couldn't something like this happen with, you know, like, I don't know, like, like, like the weaknesses within like Kirk, if you placed his, you know, uh, you know, engrams onto some other artificial intelligence, wouldn't there be vulnerabilities exposed there in that piece of AI too? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. And I think that is part of the, um, what this episode has to say is that like the technology created by man can never be perfect. It is flawed. And so you can't kind of give it this ultimate power over things. You need to have the, you know, the human instinct of Kirk and a crew to actually navigate these missions. So yeah, I, I agree. Like even though I'm sure William Shatner pitched a Star Trek movie where Kirk's mental ingrams were put in a computer, he could continue on as the character post generation. Sure. But, yeah. Um, yeah, like I, I do think that is a strong part of this episode. But like, is it is it Daystrom that causes the M five or not causes, but is what you know creates this M five that goes awry, or could anyone have created this and had it succeed? I I don't think the episode's arguing that's the case either. Oh, I just wonder if it, it speaks to the flaws within humanity um, that mm-hmm. just any individual is going to have. And when you give them ultimate power, what does that ultimately do? You know, and I think mm-hmm. it just kind of like, the, the, and again, these are maybe perhaps our own projections or our own interpretations. And um, but it's just interesting that that can kind of elicit that sort of response from us as well, even if it's not um being made explicit throughout the the episode you know so I just, like i it's just kind of interesting to like kind of like take away <laughs> kind of these flawed characters and what their flaws can do when given absolute power even watching like that ore transport ship just getting yeah. like um obliterated and just kind of the horror on like especially like uh, uh dr mccoy's face when he sees that you know and then daystrom's just kind of casual he's like eh, don't worry there's nobody on that and they're like uh yeah. dude you're teaching your uh, or your computer, your child is kind of learning the, the first steps of killing. And mm-hmm. I don't know, like, like you said, like um, thinking about like what you would do to protect your child. But my parents, they're always like, yeah, you know what? If uh, you like are involved in a hit and run, um, we are not going to be the ones to protect you. We are the ones that are going to turn you into police first off, you know, like because there's always those stories about like, you know, parents would be implicated in these cover ups. And my parents were always like, yeah. No, we're going to make sure as parents, we're making you take responsibility for what's unfolded here. So don't expect us to be part of some cover up. Yeah, no, oh, totally. Um, I think, yeah, parents will frequently um, also make the right decisions. And I think that's maybe that's the issue with um, with Daystrom here is that I don't know that Daystrom has the best understanding of humanity. Like maybe despite this being sort of this child of his. I don't know that he has the ability to, quote-unquote, discipline the child or to guide it in the right way. It's like when cracks start to appear, I don't know that he has... Well, we see this whole episode is so much about Kirk, how self-aware he is as to who he is and what the problem is and how he can solve it. I don't know that Daystrom has that self-awareness. You don't get the sense of it. Well, do you think this Daystrom Institute that we know so well from the Berman era onwards, um, was it... Name the Daystrom Institute uh, before or after <laughs> this incident, Camp. Well, I'm going to give uh, old Richard the benefit of the doubt that after this little uh, M5 disaster, that he figured things out and did some amazing work that we're going to see mentioned at some point in the future of Star Trek. Because, um, I mean, I guess he was a little older. I mean, how old do you think he was in this episode, the character? 35. I don't know that they would be naming an institute after someone who's 35, necessarily. Well, that's just it. Yeah. Like, So you get 400, 400 people killed, and they're <laughs> like, okay, well, you, guess what? Let's forget about that. You did something even greater in terms of, you know, uh, we went from, like, multitronic computers to isolinear chips or something like that. I know I'm mixing my Star Trek metaphors, so now we're going to name it. Like, I don't know if this is just something you could kind of brush under the rug. Although it's Starfleet, and maybe they didn't exactly report this to uh, the public. I don't know. Look at Worf's career trajectory. <laughs> He's doing just yes. fine. <laughs> He's killed heads of state. <laughs> Cam, you have totally ripped apart my argument right there. You, you, you're 100% right. Yes. Okay. I was curious with this episode, sort of the inspirations for it, um, because, you know, you think about what's going on at the time. Um, early computers are going on with, you know, punch cards and what have you. You know, 
there was, I believe, a, you know, there's a spy movie called Billion Dollar Brain around this time about similar computers gone awry. 2001 A Space Odyssey opened two months after this. Um, but you would have had 2001 The Book. It's interesting how, like, just that complete fear of computers, because we tend to look now at, like, 1960s computers as um, pretty <laughs> pretty archaic. But it really, it really is interesting to me just this very palpable sense of tension and fear about what these computers could lead to. Well, I mean, aren't we having those same discussions today? Yeah, oh, totally. This episode is kind of timeless. Well, and that's just it. Is this going to be like a constant thing that humanity is always going to be worrying about? You know, like, um, and, and I, I, I bet if there were like um, movies back in like uh, the 1850s, mm. there were folks concerned about what, you know, steam powered engines would mean for uh, jobs as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, the first movie was the uh, train rolling into the station and people were running away in terror from the screen. <laughs> Cam and listeners, I'm not making this up, but it's so embarrassing because whenever Cam and I go to like film festivals and that comes up on screen, Cam literally like jumps out <laughs> in terror and like starts screaming, like running to the lobby. It's like I, I try to keep telling him, like, dude, but it doesn't work. The movie um, Unstoppable was a real, real tough one for me. <laughs> <laughs> I like the uh, the Chris Pine uh, Kirk shout out right there, sir. That's Very right. good on That's you. That's right. Yeah. Uh, well, a couple notes that I, I wanted to highlight here before we uh, wander over to Avatar 2. But I like the fact that this is an era where we have a chief geologist. It, there's not just one geology uh, expert on a ship there's a chief geologist uh, who watches over the junior geologists on a starfleet <laughs> vessel this is the stuff that i like remember like we had um in space seed as like what was the art historian was uh con's uh soon to be partner yeah uh, at one point and it's just like ah, yes i want more art historians and geologists support uh <laughs> starfleet vessels um that's a lot of fun also cam um i liked it when um commodore um wesley called yeah. Kirk Captain Dunsell and <laughs> they're like what in the blazes is a Captain Dunsell and then like uh, Spock explains well it's a Starfleet Academy term it's a it's a part that serves no useful purpose I'm like wow that Commodore's what a dick and then <laughs> at, at the end of it Kirk's like you know what I knew Bob Wesley and I, I gambled on his humanity I was like the dude that called you Captain Dunsell I'm like okay a lot of humanity right there Kirk Wesley's co I like how dashing a figure he is as a Commodore though you're like now that is a that is a like higher up in Starfleet I'm like you could set your watch to that man's haircut <laughs> <laughs> okay um but you were gonna bring something up those are just kind of yeah. my uh my, my final thoughts on the episode which is like this is a solid classic TOS episode like uh, I I really do like this one which is obviously why we devoted <laughs> this time to talking about it yeah, um, this episode also has an amazing red shirt death. Um, in you know, obviously, mm -hmm. TOS had a history of that with the energy beam that makes the uh, engineer vanish. Um, and, and a scene, <laughs> you know, you were mentioning the uh, geologist. I love that moment where they are asking uh, the M5 to clarify why it chose the members for the team. And uh, I was hoping it would say it makes no sense to put all of the senior staff on an away mission. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping. I had my fingers crossed, but M5 didn't quite get there. But I loved how it was like explaining there's like the one guy who'd served on a freighter ship and knew about things like this. Like that sort of information, I just found like really fun in the scene. The way the computer could convey this, and you see like Kirk just look crestfallen. Well, there's also some sass there when M5 was like, and also you're not considered essential personnel. It's like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, ooh, meow. Now, one of the other questions I had was, do you think we're ever going to see more from Richard Daystrom in Star Trek? Mm, I guess you would be going in the uh, Strange New Worlds era, mm -hmm. and he'd be a little bit younger. Um, you know, is it? are, are we going to watch him um, accept the Nobel Prize? Is that is that the episode of Strange New Worlds that we're going to get? I guess it would be maybe an, <sighs> maybe the Nobel Prize or an episode where he comes on the ship to showcase some other type of technology or something. Yeah. Um, and he never remarked, Oh, so nice to be on the Enterprise once more, Captain Kirk. <laughs> Look, you uh. can't, you can't uh, hold them accountable for things like that. You have to let the little things slide by. It, but it'd be amazing if he's back and he's wearing that same uh, uniform or same outfit, which I think like that, that is a bee's knees right, right there. 
And I love the casting of the actor because he's like a very like tall, imposing looking dude. And not the sort of person you would necessarily think of when you are casting someone to play like a computer specialist who's going to have a nervous breakdown as they watch their machine uh, go awry. Like he's not the actor I would think of, but I love his performance. And I think he has so much presence in his scenes that it's like nailed it. Like this is why casting directors exist and why their job is far harder than people realize. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I think the original series also benefited from just kind of some like, uh, home runs, you know, and mm-hmm. other, other times a little bit weaker on the draw. Um, I don't know, but yeah, uh, I, I, it, it, it's, I think that's the reason why when you're asking me about like the, my memories from the last time I watched this one before, uh, just the most recent rewatch today, um, I think that's why he stuck out. Like that was kind of my, and it's just like great casting cue that we got right there. Why have we never seen anyone at convention wearing his outfit, though? Oh, yeah, I don't know. It, it's just, um, how many people would get the reference? Does it matter? <laughs> I mean, you can go pretty uh, obscure with some of these uh, cosplay outfits. I, I agree, like, it's not one that's going to win you the costume contest. And it's also going to take probably at least a bit of work to put together. So at that point, you want to make something that's going to potentially get you a uh, prize or something like that. So I, I get it, but... It would be a fun one to see for sure. And I mean, I've seen people dress up as like uh, cloud miners, uh, minders characters. So that's kind of obscure too. Yeah. Okay. I mean, um, maybe people tried it out earlier. They kept being mistaken for members of Devo. <laughs> the problem is you and I weren't going to Star Trek conventions in like the 70s and 80s. Maybe then we would have seen it. Okay. Yeah. Um, Cam, any final thoughts before we uh, move on to uh, Avatar, The Shape of Water? Or no, The Way of Water, I should say. Yeah, I'll just say we didn't acknowledge it up front, but this was a, a DC Fontana script, a teleplay. Um, and like just fantastic job. She always had such great insight into the characters. And so that, I think, is very much on display here. And, you know, my relationship with this episode is just odd in that like the first time I saw it, I liked it, but didn't think about it that much. But over the years since I've revisited it a number of times, and it's actually an episode that on more than one occasion I have sat and watched on the plane on the way to the Star Trek convention. I'm not sure why, but it's become kind of a tradition. Are you hoping artificial intelligence takes over the flight controls? That's an excellent question. Given that I'm kind of a nervous flyer, you'd think that would actually not be a good idea, but for some reason it's become a go-to. Yeah, for listeners that have not flown with Cam, do you remember that episode where uh, Marge Simpson um, had to get on an airplane and like she's mm. just running back and forth in the fuselage? That, that, that's Cam um, in, a, in a, a flight onto Vegas, as I've done with them many a time. Me and my mother were also chased by a crop duster. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. And yeah. it was um, uh, Randy Quaid sitting in the cockpit <laughs> of that one, right? Did you ever see that deleted scene from the the alternate, I guess... His character's ending in Independence Day that was on the DVD? No. Okay, so everyone knows the movie Independence Day. It has the big triumphant moment where Randy Quaid flies his fighter jet, you know, into the beam and destroys, you know, the ship's power. Now, the original version that they shot was him showing up in the crop duster with the bomb, like, duct taped to the side of the plane and flying yeah, up. Baby. And you can watch that scene on the DVD. It is, it's probably on YouTube, too. It is so bad. And you can see why they were like, we need to reshoot this. And obviously what they came up with was far, far better. Yeah, I can believe it there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so speaking of leaps in visual effects, Cam, um, well, just briefly, we'll, uh, we'll talk uh, non-spoilers about uh, Avatar, and then we'll do more of a spoiler-filled uh, conversation after our sign-off here. But uh, you and I went out opening nights, uh, got our 3D glasses on. This is a film, three and a half hours, or three hours and 12, 13 minutes, um, that I, I think people really should block out over the course of the holidays. It is event. It is a spectacle. It is... Um, one of, I think, only two blockbuster movies, like, and I mean that, like, in the true sense of a blockbuster, that were, like, um, just breathtaking and captivating to watch. Yeah. Um, this held my attention. The other being Jurassic World. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you know, like, this is worth it. Like, people, it's just interesting, like, um, you know, just being at the office and people are like, oh, yeah, Avatar, that movie, or just even, like, friends, um, just like, oh, you're going to go see Avatar. I'm just like, yeah, yeah, I am. Um, 
it, it, and I, I I wasn't let down. Like this, this delivered on what it set out to do, and I was just absolutely blown away by some of the sequences that we'll talk about in just a minute or two. Um, this movie did it for me. Um, Cam, uh, your your non spoilery thoughts on the Way of Water? Yeah, this is a movie I'm maybe a little mixed on. Um, but it's one I encourage everyone to go see because, as you said, like this is spectacle that really has no comparison. Um, you can't even say the first Avatar because I think the first Avatar, you know, people really fell in love with the 3D visuals of it. Um, and this one is just tenfold what that movie achieved. Like it is truly visionary, unbelievable work that is one of the very few movies I would say can never be replicated at home, at least not in any um, approaching time no. period. Uh, this is a Cam, movie... I was so thankful that you and I were in theaters and that we didn't just kick the can down the road. Like you and I, we go to theaters every week, but like we're, but we, you and I are a dying breed. Most people don't do that. I, I, my concern is that a lot of people are going to watch this at home, Yeah, and I'm like, I'm begging people, do not do that. Please. I, it really is one of those movies that you must see in theaters. Yes, it it completely is. And I think, you know, James Cameron is one of the greatest visionary storytellers across the board. And that evidence is all over this movie. There are so many sequences. There is about an hour-long action sequence that I think will just bowl people over to watch on the big screen. So in that respect, this is a movie that has to be seen. It's like Top Gun Maverick. Um, I feel a little bad for Top Gun Maverick because I think in a different year, it would just sweep all the technical Oscar categories. And after watching Avatar, I'm like, I don't know if that's the case anymore. I really think Avatar might grab a lot of things, including I don't think Best Director is off the table for his work in this movie. Um, but for me, like I, I will say just like in terms of the storytelling, I think this one, James Cameron will not be nominated for an Oscar for screenwriting. Uh there's a lot of dialogue that's pretty bad. Um, I find the characters pretty thin in these Avatar movies in a frustrating way that isn't as isn't as common in the rest of James Cameron's works. I'm not exactly clear on what the problem is there, but I found that to be a bit of a problem. But we'll talk more about that sort of stuff in spoilers. But overall, I would say in terms of like the storytelling, it, it's it's fine. But in terms of the visual and the presentation and sort of the excitement of seeing just a visionary director given untold amounts of money and deliver on that promise, you can't really argue against Avatar Way of, the, uh, way of Water. Okay, so while we uh, get into a more in-depth conversation in just a moment, but Cam, coming up next week, we are going to have our end-of-the-year episode. We are going to be tackling what uh, Star Trek was like in 2022. We'll be discussing some of our favorite episodes, uh, some of our favorite moments on the podcast, and um, maybe what we can look forward to in 2023. Yeah. Um, there will be uh, some clips as well, but this isn't really a clip show. It's it's mostly just kind of like in-depth discussion about the year of Star Trek, and I think we have so much to go through. Um, these are always like uh, just killer episodes, so definitely tune in uh, next week. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. I, I like that, you know, when you and I started doing these year-end wrap-ups, it would be like, so what was this year of Star Trek? And it was a lot of like, well, we could get a new movie, maybe, but let's mostly talk about the clips. And now there is so much Star Trek that there's so much to talk about with the passing of a year and what that year meant for the franchise. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so Cam, where can people find you on Twitter? I'm at Cam, V as in, violence is bad, M5, Smith. You can find me at Reportin, that's R-E-P, P as in, personnel, that's essential, O-R-T-O-N. Okay, so on to the spoilers for Avatar 2. If you haven't seen the movie yet, why are you here? Check out, yeah, go, yeah. Listen, go see the movie and come back here. Yeah, so uh, Kim, uh, some of the stuff that uh, really worked for me. Okay, so you and I, we leave the theaters. And I wanted to kind of pause the conversation a little bit because yeah. you were saying like by the time you got to like hour two, you know, that's when they kind of get to the uh, the sea village. That's You're kind of feeling like, ah, uh, maybe your attention was waning. Um that's when I got sucked into the movie. The, the first hour, when they're mostly hanging around uh, the Pandora forests, we're getting uh, Colonel Sasquatch or ooh, Colonel Porch, <laughs> I, 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 whatever that guy's name is. I don't know the names of anyone in this movie, Tyler. Like, I, I it's know. Quaritch, I think. Quaritch, okay. Yeah. I was just like, okay, it's just kind of, I felt like been there, done that, you know, like um, visually arresting. There's some interesting things, but I, I wasn't sucked into the movie. When they get to the sea living and you are just being uh, submerged underwater, 
I, I that's where it clicked for me, and I just realized I, I was experiencing exactly what James Cameron's hmm. best life would ever be, and I just kind of felt his passion coming through, and I just I just went with it. I was sucked in. Um, I I can understand why maybe like that second hour might you know I go uh be a little draining for some folks i don't care like uh, that's what really worked for me and um I, I agree with you the um the final act in which we get one of the most incredible action sequences ever you know seen on the big screen it was incredible but i i, also, I kind of think it was the second hour that actually just made me more attached to the movie more than anything else I just want to say I'll respond to the what I was saying about the second hour in a second, but I just feel so embarrassed for every Marvel movie, pretty much every superhero movie. Oh my god! Watching like anyone who made those movies who sits there and watches that final action sequence in Avatar: Way of the Water, and then reflects back on you know the the whatever the final fight in like anything, Black Adam or Black Panther. Black the Panther. Black pa- yeah. Panther, because I, I, very similar. I think it's just okay. It, well, isn't Black Panther exceptionally lucky that it came out and depicted like Namor and like those Atlanteans or yeah. whatever they're called um, yeah. before this ever came out? It would have been so embarrassing. Like those action sequences, especially like a ship-based action sequence that we got the climax of uh, Black Panther uh, or uh, Wakanda Forever. I should I should specify. Um, it's just embarrassing, especially yeah. when you look at the shape ship-based action sequences going on at the end of this movie were just incredible uh at least up until the eclipse stuff and that's where my my, my patience waned just a little bit but cam you were going to respond to me when i accused you of hating <laughs> the, the 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 living daylights out of the second hour of the movie no no it wasn't even the second hour it was more to to me that like um the sort of the the discovery of the reef world worked a hundred percent there is like an extended, almost like alien National Geographic section where you're just looking at the most amazing visual sights, you know, James Cameron can ever come up with. He directed a doc um, a number of years ago called Aliens of the Deep. And you can see how like the experiences, you know, that he's had doing like, you know, basically this undersea exploration feed into this movie. And he, there's so much passion and wonder in those sequences. So it's not so much that it's to me, it felt like a lot of, the character stuff in this movie I found often very rough. And a lot of it is just like teenagers having very generic, cliched teenager stories that I just did not find compelling at all. I didn't even know the name of like one of the main characters of the movie. I had to look it up after the movie was over, which is the the second son. I know Jake Sully's name, and that's pretty much it. I know Natiri. And, and Spider. Yeah. Uh, uh, Spider, Spider who played sure. uh, Colonel Korich's kind of sun in yeah. human form you know prior to the uh avatar cloning thing um i i'll just say spider did not work for me i think that was one of the most painful parts of the movie it just that character that did not work i i know what you're talking about kind of the um the teenage dynamics but you also seized on something when we we're talking kind of pre-spoiler stuff and like this is very simple storytelling i think yeah. everybody writing this knows it's very simple storytelling I can accept the movie for what it is because it's not trying to be super deep in terms of going into, you know, kind of the storytelling, the character work. And I know you're saying, well, okay, but why not? Why not try to do something a little bit more engaging with the characters? I get it, but it's not something that took me out of the movie. I could accept it and just kind of go with the spectacle. I think for me, part of the problem is like James Cameron, you can look at stuff like The Terminator. Very simple storytelling as well. He always found ways to make his characters really pop. Sigourney Weaver got an Oscar nomination for Aliens based off, you know, a script he'd written. And I even look at, like, the original Star Wars, which are the most basic character archetypes you can imagine. But there's, like, spark to all of those characters. They have very recognizable personalities. And here, I just find, like, the characters in this Avatar world, there's so little there. I don't have a clear sense as to really who they are. The most, I think, interesting character in the first movie was Neytiri, played by Zoe Saldana, who was really, like, tossed into the background through this movie. And so I'm really just left with the kids. And I just felt like they came up wanting. Like, for me, I I was hoping for a little more... Because usually when a filmmaker makes a movie that, even if it's a big hit, they look at the original and they go, okay, what can I do better? I was hoping he would maybe pick up on some of the 
kind of like very middle of the road characterizations of the first movie and go, okay, I know how to improve that. And it didn't really feel like that was the case. I found that kind of odd. Well, I, I, part of it, I'll just be honest. It, you're spending like, I, what, 90% of the movie, if not more, with nothing but Navi, right? You know, yep. like, uh, whereas I think like the uh, actual live action human characters in the first one, they're a lot more present. Uh, you know, the researchers, the military folks, whereas even the military folks here, uh, the ones that we focus most on were kind of the uh, Avatar clones as well. And I think there's just kind of a, a certain disassociation with it. And, you know, like, uh, beyond Colonel Korch, like, was were any of those Marines given any sort of, like, character beats at all? Or just, like, it, was there anything distinct about any of them? One of them popped gum. I think that was about the extent of Oh, I of remember it. that. Yeah. yeah, and one of them yeah. said Ura a lot. Uh, but no, no, there really isn't. And I get it. Like, this movie's very long. It's like three hours, ten minutes. And I'm sure Cameron's like, what, you want it to be longer? But I, I just, I, I have a hard time when it's like, if you're not writing engaging dialogue for characters to say, because look, James Cameron is known, he's famous for some like, just <laughs> really like dead-end dialogue. Like, you know, I love the movie Titanic. But a woman's heart is a deep ocean of secrets is not one of the great lines in cinema history. Uh, he's known for kind of writing the odd, like, you know, tone deaf line. But like, I find with the avatars, there's so there's so little there's there's no quotable lines at all. And I find that odd because he has a long history of this, of, of having quotable stuff. OK, so just to finish my point that I was making, um, yeah. just with regards to kind of the lack of kind of human characters, so to speak, the 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 characters that really popped out more to me than anyone else were those freaking whalers like that in, yeah. in some of the most horrifying sequences but they were the most distinct characters you know they had the aussie with like kind of the uh, hawaiian shirt um you had uh jermaine clement uh donnie like a really weird kind of american accent like it, it's almost like I, I could hear him fighting his kiwi accent every single mm. line that he made but those characters were so much more distinct than i think than like any of the other characters that we saw in this movie um well, I, I don't know, because, like, I understand Jake's motivations. I understand, like, his children's motivations. Like, and that's what you always want to do. I understand the whaler's motivations. Like, um, <laughs> instead of unobtainium, now they're uh -huh. seeking the fountain of youth through, um, I don't know, the brain fluids of, like, uh, alien whales, which I'm like, okay, uh, that's something. I, I can understand that. But, Kim, the whole sequence and when in which they went whale hunting was yeah. one of the most just like skin crawling things. Like, yeah, uh, like, I, I'm shocked that there, there weren't more people just kind of getting up and like, I don't know, like looking away or, or leaving the theater for like the, the 12 minutes or so that that uh, took place like over that. that it, but it's a memorable sequence. It was an incredible mem uh, like memorably, like just shocking, horrifying sequence that undertook. That is filmmaking though. It was yeah. so effective at what it set out to do. I really was struggling with myself during that sequence because I was not enjoying that sequence at all. And I was really questioning, like, why is this so protracted? Because in my head, I was, like, checking off people I know who won't make it through that sequence. Yeah. Who will be like, they may watch the rest of the movie, but their heart is not in it. Like, there is something that's going to hang over the rest of that movie after they've seen that sequence. Um, and I was like, ooh, like, even like, you know, I think Avatar, you know, they're four quadrant movies. They're aimed for, you know, families of all ages, you know, whatever, to come and see these movies. And I was questioning, like, is this too much for children? It might be. Uh, well, I was kind of surprised that we did see a number of children there. Yeah. You know, this yeah. is, it, it's not quite like bringing your kid to Okja, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> it was, at least for that sequence, it was kind of close to that you know yeah uh you know uh, did you notice this okay here's another weird thing I, I'm, I'm gonna go off topic just a little bit but did you sure. notice just throngs of people coming into the uh, theater late for this yeah i did and i think that's because you and i both commented there was like no commercials before the movie they rolled the movie maybe like i don't know what was it do you say eight minutes nine minutes after the trailers so I looked at my Fitbit because when you and I went and saw uh, the menu uh, just the preceding uh, weekend, and we both liked the menu, um, it was, and I counted, Cam, it was, what was it? Was it, it was either 21 minutes or 19 minutes of, no, it was 21 minutes of commercials and trailers before the menu 
actually started, which is absolutely deranged. Yeah. Absolutely deranged. Um, this one, I looked at my Fitbit. It was nine minutes. And you and I were like, really? But I... And I, but I, the answer is really obvious after I, I thought about it. Um, it's a three hour and 13 minute long movie. I, I, I think you got to keep like the, the movie, if you just want to be able to like um, screen it, you know, more than once in an evening. Yeah. You got to roll it uh, as, as quickly as possible. No, I think that's exactly the case. And I think a lot of people are now used to these, you know, showing up like 15 minutes late and just missing the commercials. And I think a lot of people walked in going, oh, <laughs> the movie started. But it was like it wasn't like they walked in like um two minutes late. It's like there are no. people walking in twelve minutes late. Like that's even late for like just a typical movie. I like I don't think the menu is like typical. Like twenty one minutes. That can we've never. I don't think you and I've ever experienced that before. Like we saw with the menu though. So I just to me I, I don't know. We did have like a bit of a line at the theater, um, which we don't usually see um, at this theater. Uh, it's the busiest theater in Vancouver, downtown Vancouver, on a Thursday night, which I get was opening night for Avatar two. But even a line is kind of unusual. Um, and usually they put the line at the top of, um, can't, what is this theater? I think it's like uh, three stories high. And mm-hmm. they usually have the uh, lineup start at the top of the escalators rather at the bottom. It was a busy night. There was a lot of interest. People wanted to see this movie so much so that they were coming in like quite late to it, which just surprised me. Yeah, I, I, this movie is, I think, tracking to do very well this weekend. I don't think it's supposed to do quite Black Panther, Wakanda Forever numbers in its opening weekend, but that doesn't really well, mean you're talking that about, much. You're, you're, you're talking about North America. Yeah, I'm talking about North American box office, yeah. So globally, it's looking at half a billion dollars, uh, you know, which for opening weekend, you know. So um, I, I think, well, what are they saying? You need to make like $2 billion if we want to see a fourth and fifth Avatar movie? Pretty much. I like that he's already on the uh, the press tour being like, boy, let me tell you, Avatar 4, what a corker. Hopefully we get to make yeah. that one, guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. So overall, like, um, if we want to talk about, like, the uh, the third act yeah. in which um, they get right down to business. Like, they are, you know, the um, the Seaside Navi. What are they called again? Um like they they weren't like the force. They said the reef people, but I, I don't remember what the actual yeah. name was. Well, even just the design of them yeah. was like breathtaking, and like they had like these larger, almost fin-like arms, and then their tails were more like fins as well. Um, um, I will say like the Sigourney Weaver playing um, uh, a, like a teenager in this. Yeah, there was a lot of uncanny valley in that performance. Like it really was weird just looking at her. This 65-year-old woman playing like a 13-year-old and just even the big eyes and the softer voice, like it, it threw me a little bit. But um, the design of the, the seaside navy, they're ready to go attack the whaling ship. And I was like, hmm, how does this go? Cam, it was just absolutely breathtaking. Like, um, and the fact that it held my attention for so long, um, up until you get to the point where it's like, how long are they going to stretch this out for after you've already kind of destroyed the whaling ship? Yeah. And like, yeah, now it's an eclipse. Now there's going to be a fire on the ship. Now there's going to be hand-to-hand combat. I'm just like, okay, I get it. And then, of course, it's just kind of the cliche thing where, like, Spider can't let Colonel Corridge just drown yeah. at the bottom of that ship. I'm just like, really? And it's all just to kind of set up the sequel so the Corridge is still around. Like, they got to finally kill him off once and for all by the time we get to the third movie, right? I hope they don't try to drag him into a- uh, Avatar Four. Um, that would be uh, a bit much, but <laughs> it'll be a, it'll be like a seaside clone this time, right? Yeah. Uh, th- well, this movie, unlike the first one, the first one is entirely self-contained. If there had never been a sequel, you had your complete Avatar story in that first movie. This one, there was definitely things that were being kind of dropped in and then never really paid off because you had Sigourney Weaver's character, you know. <laughs> who can connect to this undersea great tree, has a seizure, and they're like, if she does connects to that again, that may be the end. And then we see her connect to things again by the end of the movie. Yeah. So I would assume this will all pay off in a sequel, but there's more moments like that. And yes, all the stuff with Korich, it's kind of unsatisfying <laughs> when he's kind of saved at the end and you're like, oh, okay. I was I really was really hoping for an E.D. Falco <laughs> on the warpath in uh, Avatar 3 instead. In her exoskeleton suit, uh, exercising. Yeah, like, sign me up for that. Uh, 
she she's doing the um like i don't, I don't know that, that that was pretty amusing <laughs> watching her in that uh role but um kim one thing that did you know we can kind of pick up the seams but i think one of the big flaws though is like okay remember like the first avatar movie the whole reason jake sullivan was even sent to this planet as a totally unqualified person who uh was uh brutally injured um mm-hmm. it, it was because like his twin brother had been uh like was genetically compatible yeah. with this avatar that was already created you know like that's the whole reason why didn't they say that like each avatar costs like like hundreds of millions of dollars like to make something like that yeah so you created what like a dozen of these marine clones at the cost of what must have been what like two billion dollars to go hunt down jake sully um yeah why it doesn't like the movie doesn't really explain that very well um I, I don't know, like, this movie kind of, like, there's a number of instances where it's basically recycling story elements of the first movie. It's a, It does a little bit of the Force Awakens thing where you're like, boy, I'm in many ways watching a very loose remake of the first Avatar. And it's almost like they got so hung up on the idea of, like, Quaritch coming back as an Avatar. And look, Stephen Lang is actually really great as, you know... Avatar Quaritch here. I think he really does work as a villain, but it's like they kind of fell so in love with that idea that it was like they were like, well, he has to hunt Jake Sully, and that's the movie. But the movie never quite justifies why it's so important. And also, like you look at like the big conflict of the movie, which is entirely incredible to watch, but it doesn't really tie to what the um actual impetus of the whole story, if you base it off the first act, was. Yeah. It was just like, hey, don't we want revenge? I'm just like, okay, but why is your company, yeah, like bankrolling this all for Jake? So what? I mean, like, I can understand why a private corporation would be pissed off over this, but you're really gonna spend a, a billion dollars on, on this? Like, why? You know? Because they, yeah, they set up that the, uh, you know, the sky people, the, uh, um, you know, the Earth people want to take over Pandora. And turn it into a planet where they can go because they've ruined planet Earth. Okay, I'm on board. Um, they've come back with superior weapons. Okay, makes sense. We need to expend a huge amount of resources to track down and kill Jake Sully. Not quite there with you. I understand that he's been running these raids to sabotage you know, their ships and equipment and what have you. But it seems like not the most effective effort by the end when it's like look Stephen Lang and your avatar people can you get on this whaling vessel and head out to sea in search of him <laughs> yeah like, I know uh so Kim uh the third avatar uh is it going to be about sand people well I know James Cameron has said he could totally see all future avatar movies being about different tribes of Navi or whatever the different terms would be for where they live. Okay. So I I was asking myself this through the movie because the thing is James Cameron is so in love with water and ocean exploration. That's where his heart is. It is. And he got to like bring not just every single trope of his playbook to this movie. He also got to bring all of his conservation, his love of undersea exploration to this movie. This is the most James Cameron movie that ever James Cameron. Um, but if he's saying there's like different tribes, like what else is there? Is there like, as you said, is there like a desert tribe? Is that compelling on screen for three hours? Is there like a tribe that lives above the skyline or something? We already watched Boba Fett, I can tell you. No! Falling yeah. around these desert people for for uh, six long episodes. No, no, wasn't it like nine episode season, I think? Um, yeah, not compelling. No. So I am intrigued as to what he's thinking. I mean, I'm sure he knows. Yeah. I mean, he's already shot Avatar 3, so he clearly knows. But yeah. I just think that this movie, like when we got to the second hour, I was just like, oh, this is the movie James Cameron originally wanted to make, like, what, like, 13 years ago? or Right. Like, yeah, I think it was 2009. Like, this is, like, to me, like, I think that the um, sea life, the reef environment totally blew away what we saw, you know, uh, in the forest of Pandora all those years ago. Like, this was just so immersive and exceptionally well done. Just the creature design, the, the way that the, just even the plant life, um, just the way that he 
shot it and just the lighting even like that there's this moment where the rogue whale is taking the um younger son um just through the ocean and like there's this shot where like they get really close to the surface but it's upside down you can also almost see like the sun's like fingers just touching the surface but from underneath like it's just moments like that like this is what James Cameron is like living for you know he's like giddy like a schoolboy when he's doing this sort of stuff and and realizing it for the big screen yeah uh, that's why like just given the visual wonder of this movie and you know you compare that to the first avatar and what people really took from that first avatar was that nighttime scene with all like the day glow plants and everything like that would became like the big eye popping moment of the first movie apply that to this entire movie <laughs> it's just like <laughs> he was like you know what i impressed them big time with like that and those floating mountains i'm gonna give that to them just consistently through the entire three hour experience and you just get to soak up this world of pandora do you remember there was those stories about people that were like depressed because they had to leave pandora behind there was a number yeah. of those stories they reported on. People are going to be like, want to just like live in this second Avatar far more so than that first one. Oh, I totally agree. And this is what's going to annoy me. There's going to be like people out there that are like, oh yeah, Avatar 2. Yeah, I saw it. It's fine. It's fine. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's not, not, not worth the hype. You know, it's, it's so hyped up. It's like, oh, shut up. Like, who are you trying to fool? Like, you know, it, it's like, I can understand people are like, well, oh, yeah, that movie was long. I'm just like, yeah, well, you know what you're signing up for, right? It's like people that complain that the Oscars are too long. I'm yeah. like, that's how long the Oscars are. You know, like, deal with it, you know? And it's just like, um, if you watch this film and you can't acknowledge that it's just pure spectacle and immersive and breathtaking in a way and stuff we just don't see like day to day i'm just like come on like stop trying to be a troll like just go with it that actually what i guess i'm saying is like please absorb this with an open mind you know and, and maybe kind of um re-evaluate what your expectations are when it comes to kind of a cinematic experience you know you, you, you do that all the time with a lot of other films so i think this one deserves the benefit of the doubt here yeah i mean it's a movie that i think you just have to see and see it in a theater you will not be even if you don't walk out loving it you will not be disappointed you saw these visuals on the big screen and you know like you mentioned the runtime it is like i think three hours 10 minutes or something like that it was an incredibly well-paced three hours and 10 minutes i mean james cameron oh, yes same with titanic that's three hours those movies fly by and this one did as well i've seen two hour movies of this past you know this you know 2022 um or shorter even that took forever. Black Adam was probably like an hour and 55 minutes, and it felt <laughs> like it was seven hours long. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so Cameron, uh, look, we, we go, both give it our thumbs up. Uh, I, this is, I, I'm looking forward to, I, like, I'll probably see this in theaters again, I'm guessing. Mm. I think it'll get, like, a lot of play in theaters, uh, just because I know, like, uh, yeah, I could watch, I could wait until it's on streaming, but I'm just like, what? do I really want to experience it? on streaming and like when's the next time i'm gonna have the opportunity i really do regret not going back and watching um the first avatar when it was in theaters very briefly for a run i think back in uh, october november i right. now i'm just kind of kicking myself in the butt i was like dude i should have done that I, I, even though i did rewatch that first one about a year ago but i, I should have done it again and so i'll go see this in theaters again i think um the the other only other movie I've seen this year twice in theaters was Top Gun Maverick. And again, it's one of those spectacle movies that you get so much more out of when you are in theaters versus being at home. And for me, I just don't like the distraction of being at home. Like there's yeah. a, like, hey, oh, hey, look, I can I, I can pause and go to the bathroom now. Oh, like, oh, you don't want to make myself a nice little snack and then I'll, I'll push play. And like, ooh, somebody sent me a text message. Ooh, like, ooh who's this? And it's kind of like, I can't do that in uh, something like uh, like Avatar. No, and I feel like we would be remiss to not, as a Star Trek podcast, acknowledge that James Cameron has given us a new example of an alien character mind-melding with a whale. Star Trek IV, yeah. James Cameron was watching on a loop, <laughs> I have to imagine. Uh, yes, uh, the inspiration was right there and so obvious that uh, I, I appreciate you bringing that to my attention. Kid just needed a uh, headband on him. Would have been perfect. <laughs> Okay. So Cam, uh yeah, we love this one. Um you have no soul if uh you think this one sucked. 
Um, I think you're looking at the wrong things if you get hung up on how bad the dialogue is, which, I mean, Cam, people are still saying, show me the money 500 years from now. I'm like, really? Okay. Like, uh, I don't think so. But um, yeah, it's simple storytelling, but that's not the point. This wasn't like, the, the point was the spectacle and it succeeded there. I am curious why James Cameron is so like, it seems like fixated on using the slang of the mid 2000s in these Avatar movies. It would have been great if somebody said hasta la vista, baby. <laughs> he might as well have. It wouldn't have stood out that much. No, no. All right, sir. Well, oh yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, next year's. Or, well, yeah, I am looking forward to 2023, but I am also looking to next week's uh, episode, uh, mm-hmm. 2022 in review. In the meantime, if you've got time over the holidays, we highly recommend you catch Avatar, The Way of Water. That's right. And of course, you can leave reviews for us wherever you get your podcasts. But I think on that note, our assignment is complete. And until next time, the arena is closed. Transfer complete.